0: You may be seated. Well, some of you no doubt will have heard this story. It's been passed along in various ways through the years, but it, it's a story of a man who died one day and found himself before St. Peter. And as St. Peter welcomed him in to the pearly gates, he paused and raised a question, a protest uh, before the saint. Uh, he said, why am I here? You see, he was there because he died, and he died because he drowned, and he drowned because a flood had come to his town. And he said to Peter, why am I here? I'm a religious man, I'm a faithful man, I'm a man of prayer. I called out to my father, and yet I died. Here I am. And Peter said, son, you're here because God heard your prayer. Just that day, the alert had gone out. Uh, The the loudspeakers had shrilled out a cry that a, a flood was coming to the town and people must evacuate or they would be drowned and die. But the man said, I'm a religious man. I'm a man of faith. I'm a man of prayer. God will save me. And so he stayed. And the waters came in and they started to rise. And eventually a neighbor went by in a boat and called out to him, come here, jump in the boat, The waters are rising, you will drown and you will die. And he said, but I'm a man of religion, I'm a man of faith, I'm a man of prayer, God will save me. And he stayed. And the waters rose and he had to move up to his roof. And there was no one in sight and eventually a helicopter came from afar and they lowered the ladder and they spoke out over the loudspeaker and they said, the town is flooding, grab hold of the ladder and climb aboard or you will drown and die. He said, I'm a religious man, I'm a man of prayer, a man of faith, I've called out to God, God will save me, and he stayed on his roof. Well, the waters rose, and he drowned that day, and he died and found himself before St. Peter, and so when he asked this question, this protest to St. Peter, why am I here? Peter said, look, we sent you a loudspeaker and a boat and a helicopter, what are you doing here, right? (laughs) We often expect that if God is going to be involved, if God is going to be of help, it's going to be extraordinary. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to involve the heavens tearing open and a voice screaming down. It's going to involve pyrotechnics and all sorts of amazing, miraculous things that will be so apparent and so obvious. We often expect that God is a God of grace and God will be a God who delivers us, but we have all sorts of assumptions about what that will look like. And oftentimes that shapes our experience of the Christian life. Uh, I think about Becky, who just took vows this morning and joined the church, and what the care and the grace that God will provide to her and to all of us, us who are numbered amongst his saints, How will we receive grace for this day, for this week, for this year, for this decade, for for those to come? Will we be looking for miraculous moments where God, out of nowhere, seems to somehow intervene, stopping the laws of nature, as it were? Or will we find sustenance and strength in other ways? And I think this text says something. It addresses a pastor first, Paul writing to a younger pastor in training, his beloved child Timothy, but in addressing this pastor and in overhearing that conversation, you and I can learn something not just about the ministry or about the minister, but about the Christian life, and in particular about what I'll call the extraordinary mundane nature of God's grace, grace that comes to you and I each and every day in myriad ways. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want to draw your attention to two kinds of statements, and you'll find them mixed amongst each other. First, we'll see statements in this passage that speak to the miraculous nature of God's involvement in our lives, to the miracle of grace. But secondly, we'll see in a variety of ways how that grace takes very ordinary form. In most every day of our lives. And we'll see how the text describes the mundane nature of grace's path. And I think we'll see that grace is no less extraordinary for coming to us through remarkably ordinary means. So, first of all, the miracle of grace. Um, This passage provides a lens, you might say, for looking at your entire life past, present, and future. We're looking at every tenth of your existence. It's going to say a number of things, eight things we'll see, that provide a set of lenses to consider your own life. Um, Some of you a few years ago may have seen a movie, uh, the third of the the Ocean's Eleven trilogy, Ocean's Thirteen, and it tells the story of a number of robbers who are plotting against a resort and casino in Las Vegas. And as the backdrop to that, it it reveals a story about this casino owner and builder, this, this real estate developer. He's played by Al Pacino. And so he's this devious, dubious sort of character, as Pacino typically plays. And he is not only seeking to make a lot of money, but he wants to be lauded as this remarkable developer. And he wants to attain the highest review when his hotel is first reviewed. And so he seeks to game out who the reviewer is who's coming to the hotel, and the, the robbers tip him off in the wrong way. They, they suggest that one of them is the sort of covert reviewer, and uh, so Pacino honors him and puts him in a great suite and gives him the best table in the restaurant and makes sure he gets wonderful service from every staff member. Meanwhile, you and I, the, the moviegoers, get to see that the real reviewer is getting mistreated left and right. He can't get a table in an empty restaurant, right? Um, all sorts of terrible things are happening to him. And the first moment you see this is when he's brought into his room. It's a rather ordinary room. It's, it's new in a new hotel, so it looks clean, and the furnishings are nice. Uh, it's comfortable. It's sizable. It, it seems to have a good view. And so he, he comes in. He sets his suitcase down, and all seems to be well with the world. But he's a, a hotel reviewer. And so he does what I trust you and I don't do. He opens up a suitcase, and he pulls out a set of infrared glasses. And what has looked like a well-furnished, well-appointed bed and room suddenly turns into a nightmare as he flips a switch, and suddenly he sees what seems to be thousands of bedbugs scurrying all about. And he jumps back and hits himself against the wall, as it were. The room is a nightmare. And I'll confess, I've never visited a hotel in the last five years in the same way after seeing that scene in that movie, right? Um, Those lenses provided a completely new view of what he'd already been seeing. The lenses didn't add bedbugs to the room. They enabled him to see what was going on already with a fresh set of eyes. And I want to suggest, in a variety of ways, that's what this text does. It shows you what's already going on in your past, what's already going on in your midst in the present, what's already going on in God's promises for your future to come. And while it addresses uh, one pastor speaking to another, virtually every statement is something that could be extended to every Christian man and woman in their own way. And so I want to simply highlight, we won't linger over any of them, but I want to highlight eight statements we see in this passage of God's involvement in our midst So that we can have lenses to be alert to it. If you look at verse 6, you see here a statement that uh, Timothy has received the gift of God. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That God has gifted him, or in other words, graced him. God has offered undue, unmerited favor to him through the laying on of hands that set him apart. And you read on to verse 7, and we're told that in that gifting, God gave him a spirit. Not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And so to his natural sort of disposition to be fearful, to be anxious, to be worried, to be constantly scoping out what's coming your way because you don't know how the story's going to end, he's given a spirit, rather, that is one of strength and power. And that enables him to control himself and to love and serve others, not worrying about himself so much. The Lord has changed his very spirit or disposition, we're told there. And you read on in verse 8. We're told here that he's able to endure suffering. Apparently he undergoes a number of struggles, a number of difficulties of a variety of forms. But he's able to undergo and endure that suffering by the power of God. Probably a reference to the Holy Spirit, who's often referred to as God's power or God's might in our midst. That by the Spirit's power, he is capable of not being stoic, not being unaware of pain, not being uh, harmed by the mistreatment of others. He doesn't somehow become someone with steel skin, but he becomes someone with resolve. And he's enabled to endure amidst real pain, real heartbreak, Real difficulty, real trials. Not because he's somehow superhuman, he's not the man of steel, but he's the child of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's given God's power. And we read on into verse 9, that same Holy Spirit is the one who we're told saved us and called us to a holy calling, right? That he not only redeems us from our sins, but he enlists us in his mission, And so, in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we're not only given forgiveness and justification, but we're given a task and a job. We're given purpose and meaning. Because we're not simply given his holiness, we're given his holy calling, right? Every Christian, irrespective of what job you think you might have, what sort of uh, course of study you might undertake in school— All of us should know our calling because God has called us to a holy, set-apart, unique calling of following Him, of spreading His name and praise abroad. That's a gift from the Holy Spirit who saved us and called us in that way. We see in verse 9 also that He did this because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, God didn't identify Timothy as an up-and-comer and and say, "I'd I'd better get him on my team. God didn't somehow choose you because you showed promise or because you showed remarkable potential. God didn't somehow enlist me because I had a track record of proven worth and of obedience. Rather, God says here that he gave us all of this before the ages began and he did it because of his own purpose and grace. That his choice and his love, his election and his grace precedes us. And it doesn't just precede us, but it goes against the grain of what we might be otherwise do. It is gracious and free. It's not acting in response to us or acting in accord with our worthiness. It rather cuts against the grain of the fact that it's incongruous. It's odd. If you look around, we're nice enough folks, I suppose, but we're not probably those that we would choose to be given a task to to spread the word that will change the world. And yet that's the remarkable gift of the gospel that Paul commends to Timothy here that he reminded the Corinthians of in chapters 5 and 6, where he said, not only are you a new creation in Christ and reconciled to God through the sin-bearing work of the Son, such that you're the righteousness of God, but in him you're ambassadors for Christ and your fellow workers with God, as he says in 2 Corinthians 6.1. That's a a remarkable, strange choice of God, but it's a sign of his glory and his grace that he wants to show his strength through our weakness, and that he spreads his love to us through his election, not through our worthiness, through his grace, not through our merit. And as we read on, we see in verse 11, Paul speaking of himself now, not of Timothy, but, but stepping back and speaking even of his own calling. Maybe Timothy's being chosen out of God's kindness and mercy, Paul's an apostle. Paul's the apostle. Surely he deserved this. Surely he was promoted because of his uh, zeal, his obedience, his wisdom and knowledge. But no, we read in verse 11, Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Right? He was appointed. He was appointed. In Hebrews 5, we're told that no priest somehow assumes office on their own. But rather, they are appointed by God. It's a gift. It's a calling. It's not of themselves, but it's from the outside, as it were. And that's true even of Paul. He's appointed to this ministry. God is directing him and enlisting him. And we see it's not simply that God enlists him, and now Paul goes on his way, ministering in his own strength, but verse 12 tells us that God continues to be involved. Notice here that he says, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. It's remarkable. He's been entrusted the word of the gospel. God entrusts it To Paul, That's a remarkable sign of of the value and significance of our witness, isn't it, as Christian men and women? But Paul knows he's not been entrusted and left to himself. It's not as though God has given him a list and said, go to the store, right? I think of when my wife does that, when I'm commissioned and mandated to go find a, a number of items, and I find myself in the store scratching my head and wondering what she wrote down. Trying to make out the words, what she meant if I can make out the words, and where they might be found if I can figure out what it is, right? And oftentimes it can lead to a bit of anxiety and sweat, right? Why? Because I'm there on my own. She's not holding my hand. I've got to figure it out, get the job done, right? We often think of the Christian life that way. God has told us what to do, and he's going to check in with us someday down the road, either upon our death or on Judgment Day, right? Right? But Paul says, God's able to guard. God's able to guard what he's entrusted to me. I'm not on my own. I do have remarkable in integrity and value as a child of the king, but I'm not autonomous. I'm not alienated. God is with me and he's guarding my witness before others, Paul says. And we see how in verse 14, the eighth and final statement of God's involvement, God guards our witness in our Christian walk because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. In fact, we guard the good deposit, what's been passed on, the rule of faith and the rule of love, how we're to believe, how we're to hope, how we're to care for others. We preserve that, we protect that in fidelity by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just a spirit who's outside, who we could look to or call upon, but a spirit here who we're told dwells within us. He abides. He remains. He's not one who comes and goes. He's not one who can somehow be screamed at or summoned from afar. He's already there. He's more involved than even you or I are. He's in the midst of us, in our very selves. And He's there to strengthen us that we might be guarded, we might be kept, we might be preserved. Amidst these struggles and difficulties and trials and temptations, And so, in these eight ways, Paul is giving you and me lenses to see God in the past, electing us, saving us, giving us a calling. God in the present, guarding us and keeping us, indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. God in the future, who has not only given us the task and the end to which we walk, but is able to guard us and keep us to that end. And so the first thing we see in this text, I think, is a remarkable reminder of the miracle of grace, that you have never entered an ordinary day. You've never encountered a situation that is simply mundane, but that God's grace and God's involvement is constantly in your midst. And yet, the text says more, and the Bible says more. Think of a couple other stories. Jesus, of course, is born into this world. He assumes human form and we celebrate the glories of the incarnation. And you'll remember, of course, in the gospel according to Matthew and and according to Luke, both accounts speak of how the Holy Spirit comes. And as we affirm in the creed, the Holy Spirit brings about this miraculous birth. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, we say in the creed. And yet notice we go on in that creed to say what the Bible also says. He's born of a young virgin, born of the Virgin Mary. The Spirit's remarkable work, while amazing, takes place through the daily fidelity of this simple girl who's willing to bear the child, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Consider this Paul, who, following Christ, is converted and sent out to be an apostle, to to minister to churches and to write letters like this to Timothy. Remember, Paul, of course, was a persecutor of the church. He knew of the church, and yet he hated the church and all that it stood for. And he believed that it was opposing the people of God. And so he was literally on his way to Damascus to go persecute the church When we read of his conversion, and you remember, of course, his conversion is remarkable. Christ confronts him on that Damascus road, and he is blinded by the glory, the overwhelming radiance of Jesus. It's seismic in its scope. It's overwhelming in its power. But the story doesn't end there, because his conversion doesn't simply involve this overwhelming encounter with the risen Christ. Now it goes on, and in Acts we hear of how he's led to the house of an elder Christian, Ananias, who disciples him, who trains him in the faith, who teaches him the gospel, and how it flows forth from Israel's scriptures that he's loved from his birth. The radiance and glory of the spectacular is paired there with the mundaneness and ordinary character of friendship, of Christian witness... And of love, one person to another. Notice how we see that here as well. How we see the mundane shape of God's miraculous grace. We see it first in verses 3 to 7. That first paragraph. Where it's described in terms of the life of the family. What we would call the, uh, the hereditary family. You see Paul speaking of himself in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve. Or it could be rendered whom I worship as did my ancestors. In other words, Paul's noting that while he had to be confronted by Jesus and he had to be trained by Ananias, he nonetheless was schooled in the scriptures of God and God's people, and he was reared in the worship of God by his ancestors. He was in a family, as many of us can be grateful for, where God's name was praised, where God's scriptures were revered, where God's commands were, were treated as our instruction and our pathway. And so he commends his family as a conduit of God's grace in his own story. He owns the fact that his faith is that of his ancestors, and that's no small thing. But notice it's not just Paul, it's Timothy as well. For he notes in the following verses here, as we read in verse 5, that his sincere faith is the same faith, that dwelt first in his grandmother Lois and then in his mother Eunice, and is, Paul sure, dwelling in him now also. Right? Notice it's the same faith. Three generations described there. Timothy experiences God's glorious grace through the channels of care and love, of compassion and kindness from those who are closest to him, from grandma and from his mother. who have taught him from the earliest of days how to praise God, how to receive God's grace through Christ Jesus, how to follow God as he calls to us in his word, how to pray at all times and in all ways before the Father of all heaven and all earth. And so we see here in verses 3 to 7 how family is such a typical and ordinary context for the passing on of God's grace. But of course, many don't have Christian families. Many don't have environments where they're reared, where God's name is honored, where God's word is trusted. And so Paul goes on. And as you look at verses 15 to 18, he speaks of a deeper family, a family that our earthly families only point to, the family of God's people, the church. And I'll confess, this, this is one of the texts that cracks me up, truth be told as someone who studies the Bible. Because Paul does what we tend to think, at first glance, is rather uncouth. He dishes on a couple guys, right off the bat, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of waxing eloquent at the end of the preceding paragraph, verses 13 and 14. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. He talks about how you're to guard the good deposit. And then suddenly it's as, lo- as though he sort of drops in this, this sort of non-sequitur, Right? You're aware that all who were in Asia, they turned away from me. And, and lest that sound like a broad criticism, notice Phygelus and Hermogenes are among them, right? Um, he is dogging a couple people, and he's dogging an entire community. And this is no small thing because Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus. And Paul is speaking of people very close to Ephesus, right? relative near neighbors, as it were. And he's pointing out people abandon him. Why is he doing that? Well, he doesn't just dog people. He doesn't just point out bad examples, but he immediately moves on and offers a response and a commendation. He speaks of Onesiphorus, asking that God would grant mercy to this one and to his family because he often refreshed Paul and he wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. What does that mean? That sounds really esoteric, doesn't it? He wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. Well, he goes on in the next verse. He says, When he, Anisiphorus, arrived in, arrived in Rome, he searched for Paul earnestly and found him. You see, Paul was in a prison. And Paul was in a prison not because of insurrection, not because of felony, but because he had supported a religion, Right? He was imprisoned for his religious beliefs and practices. You'll remember, in Ephesus, he had been brought before the authorities. And he had declared, eventually, that he was a Roman citizen, and so they must take him to Caesar. And that's how he finds himself in a Roman prison. Ancient prisons are very different from prisons here in Florida. They did not share our convictions about cleanliness and care, as it were. They did not share our convictions about watching out for and providing for those who are in prison. In ancient Rome, if you're imprisoned, you will not eat unless someone from the outside brings you food. Right? It's a rather simple way to sort of balance the budget, as it were. Well, Paul's not near home. He's in Rome. Family are far away across the Mediterranean. Who's going to bring him a brown bag lunch that day? The church. But here's the catch. If people who don't look like him, if people who don't look like brother or sister or mom and dad show up day after day after day providing him food, people are going to start asking the question, why are you here and why are you caring for this man? We see the same dynamic in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10 where the author commends that congregation for identifying with those who've been imprisoned. In other words, they have been willing, they have been bold enough to go care for Christians who were imprisoned, knowing that it put them in jeopardy as well. And apparently Onesiphorus is an example of that. He wasn't ashamed of Paul's imprisonment, of his chains. And so as soon as he got to Rome, he sought out Paul to go care for him, to go encourage him, and yes, to feed the man, right? That's an example of the way the body, the church, our ultimate family, ought to work. Just as Phygellus and Hermogenes and the others in Asia, they're an example of how it shouldn't work because they refused to identify with Paul. They refused to meet him in his troubles. They refused to provide for him where he was in need. They pre- refused to count it more significant to care for him than to be safe from the eyes of Rome. And so what Paul's really getting at here is the way in which grace is ministered through the body of Christ and through our care for one another. Not in ease, but in times of difficulty. Not in situations where we know the result, but in times where we may well be putting ourselves in jeopardy with the kind of lavish love that we show to others, with the kind of self-sacrifice that we put forward for the betterment of our brothers and sisters. And so you may have a remarkable earthly family who you can view as a a conduit of grace. But you may have to look to this, to those around you today, because God gives each and every one of us, as we're united to Christ, a union with one another. And God allows grace to flow from brother to sister and from sister to brother. And Paul commends those who are willing to be instruments of grace in the ongoing monotony of our need. Our daily, weekly, yearly need. Consider his situation. He's a prisoner. Nothing is more monotonous and mundane than the life of a prisoner. You're there. Your schedule is open, right? Life is uncluttered, if ever it were, right? And yet you constantly have need. He needs food this day and tomorrow and the next day. What a picture of Christian care and nurture providing regular, ongoing, persevering, mundane need. Mundane and ordinary provision for a brother who's in a situation of difficulty. And that's the way God's grace goes and encouragement flows from one to the other. And so Paul here wants us to have eyes to see, lenses to see through God's word, the way in which our lives are lavished with grace. But he also wants you not to fall foul of the fallacy that suggests that God's grace always takes remarkable form. You know, if you read the Pentateuch, you know, of course, that God can speak to you through the mouth of a donkey. God is Lord, he's king, he's sovereign, and in his majesty, he can address you from the heavens or through a barnyard animal. And yet you and I know, reading God's word, that if you want to hear from God and be encouraged and guided by God, you do well not to go to the barnyard this afternoon, but to open his word where he promises to meet you. We speak of what we call means of grace, ordinary practices that God has promised to bless. And that's what Paul is commending to his brother Timothy and to you and to me as well that we remember our need for grace, but we not somehow delude ourselves into thinking that it doesn't come through the ordinary and that it doesn't employ means to reach us. You know, I think sometimes writers perhaps appreciate the reality of grace and beauty in the ordinary more than the rest of us. I think of Gerard Manley Hopkins, the remarkable poet and writer, who spoke of how Jesus Christ plays in 10,000 places speaking of how he shows up in dramatic form in all manner of situations and how he brings life and light and glory and beauty and power and strength through a million and one different means and instruments of his grace and his care. Or I think of the contemporary writer and Christian Marilyn Robinson, who at the end of her Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, speaks through the mouth of an aging, soon-to-die pastor, writing to his son that the world is lit up like transfiguration. Only who would have eyes to see it? It takes courage to see the world, the world as it is, lit up like transfiguration by the presence of God, by the grace of God, through the neighbor, through the mother, through the deacon, through the church member down the pew from you. As we think about grace... We think about God. As we think about grace, we think about God involved in our midst. As we think about grace, we think about God involved in our midst to bring us to glory eventually through Jesus Christ and by the power of His Spirit. But that doesn't mean that we stop thinking about where you'll be this afternoon and whom you'll be amongst and what you've got to do. No, because God's grace and God's power is so strong, it is so mighty. And it is so loving and merciful that it actually reaches into your everyday experience. You know, we just celebrated the events of Holy Week. And I'm reminded time and again throughout that week of the remarkable glories and graces of it, as well as just the exceedingly mundane details. You'll remember on Palm Sunday as we see that our Lord is brought into town, into the town, Jerusalem, the city of the king. He's lauded as being the Savior and the Lord. And yet he sits upon an animal. An animal that the Gospels go so far to take great detail to tell us that his disciples could go found in a certain place and receive permission for the Lord to ride it in. And we read on the account of the Last Supper how Christ there feasts for the last time with his beloved disciples and how he speaks of what's coming and of his departure and of his promise of the Spirit and he prays for them. And we see how he institutes the Lord's Supper in that very meal, setting a a paradigm and a pattern that we continue to follow to this day. And yet as we read there, we don't simply encounter remarkable, weighty words, or his heavenly prayers, or his perfect example, but we begin by reading of a conversation where his disciples talk through, so how do we find a room to host our meal? And he speaks of how they can go down the street and they can identify a person and he will have an upper room and he'll enable them to stay there. He deals with room reservation in the midst of all of it. And then we march to Friday, where he bears your sins and mine, where he defeats death and devil once and for all. And while we do hear of darkness coming over the whole land, while we hear of dead being raised, while we hear of the temple veil tearing, while it's remarkable and cosmic and overwhelming, the Bible takes time to describe the fact that a particular man is there to carry the cross along the road to help Christ on his way. And how another man, at the end of the day, is willing to take his dead, beaten body and put it in his tomb so that God's got a place to bring him out and to draw him into life by his resurrecting power. Time and again, even in the most significant, weighty, heavenly, overwhelming events of Jesus' life, the Bible shows the integrity and value of small human actions of loaning a donkey, of providing a room, of carrying a cross for someone, and of providing a grave. And it shows that God's grace, God's involvement, works through these very mundane, ordinary means. C.S. Lewis, years ago, wrote about how God is not embarrassed to bless us through things like bread and wine and water, the sacraments of his church. And he said, we ought not be too We're more spiritual than God. I think Lewis undersold our ability to be unimaginative. It's not just the sacraments that we're unenamored with. It's God's presence in, in everyday life, isn't it? That we are so prone to think he's absent until he somehow steps down through the clouds. Let's not be too spiritual to miss God's grace from your neighbor, from your fellow pew dweller, from your ancestors. And let's not forget that we're called as the body of Christ to extend the hand, to offer the comforting word, to witness to the gospel, to visit the prisoner, to be the instrument and extension of God's grace in the midst and lives of others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you that though we sin and run from you, you do not leave us alone. And we cannot defeat your plan and program to give life and blessing and glory and honor to your children through Jesus Christ, the Savior, not only of us, but of the whole world. And so we look to him this day and we ask that you would help us to see not only the way in which he rules and reigns from your right hand, but the way in which he works through his body and the way in which he calls each of us to be instruments in his, our Redeemer's, hands. And so we pray all of this in his holy and glorious name. Amen.